Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, we are talking with Brian Saber, president of Asking Matters about our asking styles. I feel like this is going to revolutionize the way that we think about asking. So let's just jump into it. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. So, Brian, this is so fun. Everyone loves a quiz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but before we jump into what asking styles are, as you know, I have your book right here. I know you're working on another one. But before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in the nonprofit world. Sure. Well, I fell into it right after college. I was one of those do-gooders, very involved in lots of activities. I was a student leader. And I really enjoyed being part of a group that was trying to make something better, not just make money, enrich myself, whatever. But I, it was a, I felt I was part of a group working together in that case for, for education and decided I wanted to go into the nonprofit world. Didn't have any idea what that meant, really, in terms of what I would do and ended up first with some really low level marketing job at a performing arts center where you didn't have to have any experience because I think they paid me $11,500 a year. And then I fell into a dance company where I was business manager only because I had an economics degree and it was pretty simple. It was a small company. And then I became the executive director of a teeny dance company in Chicago, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year where I was everything except the program really and i had to fundraise and so i started fundraising i had a big grant a renewal to a foundation due two weeks after i started i had no idea i'd never seen a grant proposal (laughs) or anything in my life and i intuitively because i am more intuitive and we'll talk about that us reworked it because what i saw didn't really it wasn't strong in my opinion and and i met with the funder and i developed a relationship and we got renewed and then i had to start working with the board and i just learned by doing never thinking i'd be a fundraiser and because i turned out to be very good at that at building relationships bringing in significant gifts from individuals and from institutions and working with the board i Everyone wanted me to do it going forward. And I ended up spending a lot of my career the next 20 some odd years doing that until 2008 when I stepped back and said, I want to, I want to do something different. And then, and that evolved into asking matters and the asking styles this, because I felt our, our field needed so much help trying to be more comfortable and more effective doing the work that I did. So much of what you're saying echoes my own experience and so many others out there as accidental fundraisers, right? Yes. Like we are tasked to do these jobs. Yes. We don't really receive formal training and it feels a little bit like sink or swim, right? Like you either are good at it or you decide it's not for right. you and you leave the field. So let's talk about asking because I know solicitation is a thing that creates so much anxiety for people. I, I literally have had board members who said, I will do anything but ask for money. Exactly. Why is it that you think asking creates so much anxiety for people? There are many reasons. When we're looking at board members, the big issue there, and it's a huge bone of contention for me, is that we we ask our board members to step on relationships and ask the people they know for what turn out to be these transactional gifts. They give the gift because of, of you. They don't really care. Maybe they ask you to give a gift in return. The whole thing is very awkward. And most people don't want to step on their relationships, have that come in between them. So that's there's a big piece there. More generally, spend a lot of time talking about mindset because when we sit down with a donor, someone who's primed, right? They have their philanthropy hat on. They're primed to give. They're coming from a place of generosity, hopefully, right? And we sit down with all of these other issues, all this other stuff in our head, including our relationship to money, how we grew up talking, not talking about it, how it impacts our lives, our sense of our money versus other people's money and 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 so forth. And 
And on top of that, we have what most of us have a fear of rejection, a fear of doing things poorly, being awkward, making a mess up on behalf of the organization, right? Not wanting to just screw it up in general. All that comes to the table for this and is compounded because as you sort of intimated with, we just start doing it, we have so little training. I have never had an hour of training in fundraising. Instead, I had 25 years of doing it to sort of figure it out. It would have been a lot easier if I had some training in 1985 during my first job, right? Today, there is more training and a lot of people get more through webinars and all sorts of things earlier. I feel old when I say that, like I'm another generation, but I didn't, we don't have much training. Our boards have virtually no training. And this is not easy stuff. This is the hardest, I think it's the hardest fundraising because it involves relationships. Oh right? my gosh, Brian, so. Brian, for the podcast listeners, you can't see me. I'm just nodding emphatically over here because <laughs> I double click on everything you just said. I mean, as yeah. people who've been following me for any length of time know that money mindset is one of my seminal trainings, right? Because I don't think you can be an effective fundraiser until you unpack your own stuff about money, right. your baggage, your trauma, the stories that you tell, the stories that you tell about other people's money, right? Got to wade through all that stuff, wade through the fear of rejection, wade through the anxiety, all of the things. So yes, yes, and yes. And, and I agree with you. My first day on the job as an ED, 26 years old, I did two Google searches. The first was, what does an ED do? And second was how to fundraise. I didn't fundraise a day in my life, right? So trial and error. And what most EDs haven't, because most EDs come from the program side. I was actually, I was an ED twice. And the second time I rose from deputy in charge of all the fundraising and marketing and external stuff to ED. I was a rare breed going into that role. Most EDs go into that role, the board's expecting them to do all that work and they've had no training. They have no idea what to do. Hello. Um, can yeah. we get, can we double click on that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing that gets me is boards are then reluctant to invest in professional development right? to have the person that they hired to do the job actually know how to do the job. Right. Blows my right. mind. Oh, I ask this question every time I train now, how many hours do you think it takes to get a license to cut hair in a particular state? I don't know, 100 hours. It is, it is anywhere from 1,200 no. to 1,800 hours. Stop it. Yes, to get, your, to get a certificate to cut hair. So you can cut hair. <laughs> with ver You can't cut hair until you have an extraordinary amount of training. And yet we go out to do something. I mean, people want to cut hair. People go into that business because they want to cut hair. They have some artistic whatever. And... And they have to have a thousand plus hours to do it. And we we start fundraising with zero hours. Oh, and, that's and so we ask our board wild. members to do it. It's crazy. I know yeah. everyone thinks maybe a hundred hours, two hundred hours. Google it. I mean, I believe you. That's, state, that's whoever's insane. It's insane. So so what you're saying here is, Brian, that it takes more training to cut people's hair than it does to be able to fundraise on behalf of life-changing causes. Is that what yes. I hear you saying? Okay. Yes. And Just I don't to be clear. in any way people to cut hair because we all like to have our no, hair listen, I, well. I, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm tight. You see all this? I'm feeling good. But also people, we really need to start investing in our we people. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's, let's transition. Okay. You're feeling my outrage. We're going to move on though. So you have this book. Asking Styles, which I, I love. Uh, you sent it to me and you put a lovely inscription. <laughs> so thank you for that. Okay. People can go, they can take the quiz. They can figure out which of the four asking styles they are. Yeah. Brian and I, before we got on the call, I had him guess who I was. I guessed who he was. So we'll do that reveal at the end for funsies. <laughs> Walk us through this a little bit, Brian. Yeah. Maybe... Talk about the origin story briefly, and yep. then talk about each of the styles and the pros and cons of each. Sure. So it came out, first of all, my partner in this at the beginning was Andrea Kielstead. Andrea was a well-known capital campaign consultant. She literally wrote the book. 
the book that people use, the book that I have used since meeting her. And she had done a campaign with my last organization. We become fast friends and, and then we decided to work together. And she'd been noodling with this idea that there are temperaments or something. And I said, let's take that. Let's see what we can do with it. And, and we built at the Asking Styles and Asking Matters because we realized through our work that this, the work we talk about, this cultivating and soliciting people individually and significantly individuals, because that is the hardest. It's easier to go to grantors and such. It's the, the, for many reasons we won't discuss, but also most of the money is with individuals if you look at the statistics. So I we know. wanted to focus on that. And we knew that there were different ways to do it. No one had it all. Right. I never had it all. I had certain strengths. I played to my strengths. I tried to compensate or partner where I did. And we wanted to help people understand what they brought to the table and really be proud of what they had and, and then try and figure out their challenges. And we thought, well, what are the characteristics that most impact someone's asking style? And we thought, well, it's first how you interact, maybe mostly how you interact, because we're call, talking about relationships, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, right? Where on that spectrum you are. And of course, people have these gross stereotypes of all of these things, right? So showing my age, I use as an example for the, the stereotypical extrovert, John Candy from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So in your face. And you could use Michael Scott from The Office. Right? Everyone knows that character. And that an introvert, someone like Shrek, hermetically sealed, someone who never socializes, neither of which is true for 99 and 9 tenths percent of the population. So it's how you interact. And then the second characteristic is how do you think? Where on the analytic intuitive line are you? Are you into the facts and figures and such? Is it more about a story and a gut feeling? Because that's going to impact why you came to this organization in the first place as either a staff member or a board member, why you're passionate about it, and how you're going to talk about it. When we put the two together, we get these four styles, Rainmaker, Go-Getter, Kindred, Spirit, and Mission Controller. Now, no one fits cleanly in one box. And as you know from taking the quiz, we have a primary and a secondary. So it gives you a little more nuance. The Rainmaker, the analytic expert. Wait, wait, wait. Before, before yeah. you get into it, because okay. as I was reading about it, it really struck me as very similar to kind of a Myers-Briggs kind yes. of. Yeah, like an ENTJ yes. or whatever yes. it is. And yes. so was that was that the inspiration for it? Or is it well, connected to Myers-Briggs? It isn't. It isn't. This was developed on its own. But the philosophies are similar. There's also DISC. There are many of these that divide into four quadrants. So we tried to do something like that based on the two characteristics we understood and to put it in more layman's terms and then and fundraising terms so that it was to use a maybe a hackneyed word accessible but we wanted it to be real something you could that was tangible that once you knew it you knew it and i'll be honest because i would i think i said before we went live i wasn't a big personality quiz whatever person before this andrea had more experience with it but i do remember with some of them not being able to remember what i was and what it meant i sometimes have to go back to my notes you know, and, and, and again, not to disparage anything, but I think for many of them, you have to go in really deep to really understand. And we wanted it to be simpler than that. So it was easy to apply and easy to discuss in the moment. Got it. The whole philosophy of what we do is that it's pretty straightforward and usable. No jargon, no yep. Yep. whatever. Yep. So, okay, cool. Let, let's dig into the four types. Okay. If you could just quickly walk us through sort yes. of the characters, yeah. pros and cons of each of okay. the profiles. Okay. I guess we'll, let's start with the Rainmaker. Rainmaker, the extrovert, <clears throat> competitive, driven, keeps their eye on the prize, always watching the goal. Ask the question, <clears throat> what's the goal? The goal is going to drive the Rainmaker and it has to be quantitative because you have to be able to assess, that's how the Rainmaker assesses whether the goal has been reached. Okay, we made five, we, we closed five gifts. We raised $100,000 for our investment account, whatever it is. So great skills in moving forward, keeping their eye on the prize and such, short on process. Short on process, doesn't like to spend a lot of time. I can always tell my Rainmaker donors, though of course they're not asking, but 
everyone has one of these personalities, right? The rainmaker donor is the one who says, let's just get to the point. You don't, I don't need a lot of chit chat first. Why are you here? And often in a way cuts off the wonderful <laughs> story I was going to tell. Anyway, that's the rainmaker. The go-getter, our intuitive extrovert, is the is big picture thinker, passionate, makes friends easily, lots of ideas, and 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 brings people along through their enthusiasm, which is so exciting. And I, I have to say, I love I love go getters. Many of my favorite people are, and I love them until they drive me nuts, including Andrea, my my co-founder, who had tons of ideas, and eventually we realized, I think it's in the book that. I don't, I, I don't want to reveal my style yet. <laughs> I guess I'm not supposed to reveal it. But we, we had a different approach to process and to these ideas. And I needed to step back and really think about them. And we finally realized our meetings had to be a little shorter because I had to be able to digest everything she was telling me. So that's our go-getter. Our kindred spirit, our intuitive introvert, is the feelings-oriented, wear your heart on, the sleeve, on your sleeves person who's there uh, can be oversensitive, but very sensitive and is sensitive to others, is caring and thoughtful. How can I make sure you feel good about your contribution? I want to make sure you're heard. How would you like to be thanked? What can I do for you to show our appreciation and so forth? Those are fabulous skills for a fundraiser, very different from a rainmaker. Not saying a rainmaker can't be caring and a kindred spirit can't be goal-oriented, but we have our, our niche, right? So those are the strengths of the kindred spirit, but the kindred spirit can be, can look at negotiation as conflict, right? May want to steer clear of the more difficult questions, may want to put a number on the table that's a little low to make sure they're not going to get any pushback, things like that. So those are some challenges for the kindred spirit. By the way, in terms of the go-getter, besides ideas and such, go-getters often talk too much. It, it just, and, and we know listening is so important and fundraising and go-getters can overshare that way. Mission controllers, our fourth style, that's the analytic introvert. That's the Eagle Scout, the, the one you can always depend on to keep their eye on what's happening. Very systematic, methodical, planful. They're always going to ask, well, what's the plan? What's the plan? How do we make this happen? And the best listeners, most likely to sit back and listen rather than talk, which as we know, and we, you and I have discussed, is so key to fundraising, listening and learning. So in question terms, the Rainmaker is going to ask, what's the goal? Quantitative. The go-getter is going to say, what's the opportunity? What's the big picture vision? Not as concrete but exciting. The kindred spirit is going to say, what about the people? Are the people, are we serving people the best? And the mission controller is going to say, well, what's the plan? Can we get it done? So, right. Okay. The goal is great. Can we get it done? It's great that you see this opportunity. Can we do it? How do we do it? We want to serve the people. How do we do it? So it's a checks and balances actually when you have everyone. So, okay. Are you one forever and ever? I mean, can you change over <laughs> yeah. time? And, and well, can you have a, a second complementary yes. style? Yes. So let me answer the secondary. You do have a secondary, and anyone who takes the quiz will get a result. And it might say your primary rainmaker, secondary go-getter, which says your extroversion is really the primary characteristic, right? How you interact but that you have some of the analytic and the intuitive, or it might say you're a mission controller kindred spirit, right? Much more introverted with some of the intuitive story along with your analytic fact side. And we did that because we don't think anyone fits cleanly in one box and we don't want, and, 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 and also depending on who you are, some people are going to be like really in a corner, Uber something or other hardcore up there. Many of us are more towards the middle. And depending on the situation, it's much easier for us to use more or less of our, of our toolkit, right? Because we all have some of all the characteristics I mentioned. And some people who say, oh, I'm really not sure which one I am are almost right here at the origin of the axes. 
right? Where they really have a balance of those. So the first question is, yes, you do have more than one. And we say it's a secondary style. Can you change? No. You are who you are, but you change how you act. You learn, you learn, you learn skills. You learn how to deal with some of your own challenges and make things comfortable for you. You become an executive director and you have no choice but to focus on plans and budgets and you learn how to do it even if you were a major intuitive before. You learn how to do it or you find someone to do it for you. But you don't, people don't generally at the age of 30 become analytics if they're not analytic. There's some play you might get more comfortable with your own gut over time and you may rely a little less on the analytics. But but we are, I think we are who we are. And I will say here, a few years ago, because I get that question a lot, I looked at Myers-Briggs and what they do. I had it before. And they say the same thing. They say, we believe you basically are who you are and you learn how to act in the world. So I'm assuming DISC and all the others do as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting too, because as you as you talk about it, I think the most skilled fundraisers are what we would call curious chameleons. So they're uh, able to lead with curiosity about the donor, but they're also able to change yes. their style. Based, like, you know, for me, as an example, I won't share which one I am, but- I knew that if I were speaking to someone who worked on Wall Street, like the facts and figures, I would lead with that, right? As opposed to somebody who was more sort of story-driven than I would leave that. So right. I I learned right. how to kind of speak the language. But actually, yeah. that's, that's a really great point because these styles are not just about the askers. It's also about your donors. The donor, so, right. So let's talk about that. Sure. Well, again, you start with who you are. So- I always tell an intuitive story. It's who I am. If someone's going to say, what's so great about your organization? I'm going to talk to it, talk about it from my perspective and my passion. And that's what everyone should do. It doesn't mean you don't get to know your donor and, and, and also, um, also cater to your donor's interests and perspective in the meeting, after the meeting, during the whole relationship, right? You learn which donors want more facts and figures and you can provide them without having to tell a story that's about them. Because chameleon's an interesting word because we, it, there's this thin line in fundraising where you, you, the goal is to be authentic, right? Be, to be passionate and authentic. When I teach story, telling your story, I say, be authentic because if everyone remember elevator pitch, we used to tell our board members. Uh, I can't, I, I'm Horrible. telling you, I'm on a single woman mission to just kill the pitch. Kill it, I, kill, I it. kill the pitch. It's because so awful. It means everyone's saying the same thing, and most people are saying something that really isn't germane to how they feel and what's so important to them. And unless you have a board full of fabulous actors, maybe if you're a theater company and you have all these actors on your board, they can act that out. But most of us, it's going to fall flat if we say it. What we want to do is be ourselves. And because our donors want to feel we're being authentic and that we're passionate. Otherwise, why would they form a relationship with us? Right? That's right. And so, so there's this thin line, right? And I think when it comes, the best thing you can be is yourself. And but part of best practices in fundraising is understanding your donor and also bringing that to the table. That's legit. Trying to talk like a facts and figures person isn't. Bringing the facts and figures and saying, I know you're interested in them, here they are, is makes sense. Yeah, Just, absolutely. Right? And, and actually, yeah. I, I just want to make sure that we lift that point up too, which is, you you have to know who you are and lead with the authenticity because the number one thing that people can sniff out is BS, right? They know yes. when you're being fake. Right. They know when you're right. trying to network them. I mean, it, right. you can smell it a mile away, especially New Yorkers. New Yorkers <laughs> have a very finely tuned BS. They do. And who wants to build a relationship with a faker, right? Absolutely. In our lives in general, right? We veer away from that. So how do we know when we're talking to donors, like what are the things that we might be able to hear to indicate where they are on, on the different yeah, yeah. style? So sometimes I say you, you learn that sometimes just setting up the meeting. 
So you reach out to your donor and say, I'd, I'd love to sit down with you to bring you up to date on what we're doing and ask for your feedback, whatever that is for, I'd like to sit down and ask for a gift. Well, the Rainmaker is gonna be, okay, let's get out our calendars and probably give you less time than more, right? The go-getter, oh, sure, great, and open to it, let's meet, because the go-getter is going to enjoy meeting overall. The kindred spirit will probably meet to, to, to come through for you as the donor as much as anything. I know it's important to the organization, so I'll meet, and you may hear some of that message. And the mission controller will go along with it, but is the most likely to say, send me information in advance. That's the other thing. Go-getters, oh, just come meet with me. Polar opposite mission controller donors, sure, can you send me a proposal in advance, which I, I try not to do, right? And I try, uh, but they're the most likely to ask for that. They may ask for facts and figures, right? The analytics will ask for more information. So you can sometimes tell just by setting up the meeting. You can certainly tell by the questions people ask and how they ask them, right? I will admit, Okay, I, I do need to share my style because it's hard for- Okay, share, share your style. I'll, I'll share my style. <laughs> okay, I am a kindred spirit with a secondary mission controller. And here's how I describe it. Well, I'm, I'm definitely introverted. I never go to a party, period. I do not go to parties. Well, COVID must uh, be great for you then. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I was lonely, but actually I- I accomplished a tremendous amount and, and I know extroverts were just, it was crazy for them, but I was able to do, I did 70 some odd jigsaw puzzles. I wrote two books. I did all this stuff. I was very productive during COVID. So I, I, I do spend a lot of time by myself, but I really need people in my life. I don't want to say I'm a hermit and I can go along with whatever anyone wants to do. However you want to do things. I'm often asked to lead things, make decisions and lead things because I have a, a strong mission controller. I'm good at organizing. So even though I don't want to lead things, my kindred spirit says, I don't really want to be in the limelight. I often end up sort of in the limelight because someone has to do it. I feel bad that it's not getting done and I say, I'll do it. And everyone's happy that I'll do it. Even board fundraising. So when I'm a, I've been a deputy ED or an ED, the board has said, well, Brian, you can ask us for gifts, basically. And I do it because I can, I can, and I want to make sure it gets done. But boy, do I not want to do it. I don't think staff should be soliciting boards. Anyway, that could be another webinar. But, but that's how I, I, I look at my style. And I, so I mentioned Kindred Spirit Mission Controller because I, I get anxious with rainmakers. They're so focused and they want to drill in and, and, and for them, it's exciting. I'm going to figure this out. We're going to parry almost back and forth. And I find it confrontational. So that's my own, my own thing to deal with. So I find I'm most anxious when I go see rainmaker donors. And it's obvious to me who they are because of how the questions they ask and how they the, the speed of them and how quickly they then want to get to the the, the meat of the meeting. So, so wait, I, okay. I have a question here. I, so much so, I know so many questions, but <laughs> we know that storytelling is best practice. We talk about how story yes. unlocks generosity. There's a lot of brain science about why story works. Is that at odds with donors who are essentially rainmakers and mission controllers? Like, do they think it's just like fluffy stuff or does it still work? So I think, well, first of all, your story can, I mean, mission controllers are going to tell what I call a planned story where they're going to talk about the, how the plan, how the way the organization works makes an impact and fulfills vision. I always talk about making an impact and fulfilling vision, but we talk about it a different way. So the rainmaker will talk about the goals we have for making an impact and fulfilling our vision. Where the the go getter will talk about look at the opportunity we have. This is what we're trying to take advantage of. So in a way, we're all telling a story. Is it always, but it's not always a story about a person and their journey and such. And I say, if you can't tell that story well, if it's not really meaningful to you, don't tell that story. Yes, that might be ideal. And in direct mail letters, you always have a piece of that because you have people who really 
love that story. But first comes being yourself, for sure. So I, I to me, story has a broader connotation. Right? And yeah, it, it, everyone is telling a story, but what that specific story you're talking about that you know, the research shows you can only tell if it's good, if you're good at it. I think more important than that story is the overall relationship you develop with your donor over time. So they trust you. So they believe in you as the representative of the organization. That's really what's most important in fundraising is building that relationship. So many of the gifts I've gotten over time are because of that relationship. And while we don't want people giving because of us, we want them giving because of the organization, we are entwined. There's no yeah. way around that. We are. Yeah. And and if we're bad representatives, that will impact how they feel about the organization, how they contribute. So building those long, deep relationships is really important. And I don't think that's based on just telling a story. It's based on being being thoughtful and involving people and thanking them and letting them know how important their gift is. And We do talk about having people develop a relationship with our organization. We, we might call it brand loyalty in a yes, for-profit yes. context, but the way I think about it is I, uh, I will buy Apple because I have brand loyalty, but when it comes to my nonprofit life, I actually am much more attached to the people, right? as opposed to the organization. I'm just wondering, do you think it's possible to develop that kind of brand loyalty to a cause and organization without that personal relationship? Yes, I think so. I think there are many organizations that have a very strong brand loyalty. I can mention St. Jude. I think virtually none of the people who contribute have a relationship. They have an extraordinary brand. Of course, they're very large. So I caution there because you and I know 90% of all nonprofits have a budget under a million dollars. It's very hard to develop a brand, right? So the loyalty probably is more to people. On the other hand, there are some organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs, WISE, Boys Hope Girls Club, Volunteers of America, whatever, where the the huge organization has a brand an image and such but locally the the loyalty is not to the brand it's really to the people on the ground in that community so it becomes a myth but it's it's hard for most of us to fundraise without the relationship the the personal relationship building and the loyalty to the relationship yeah getting to know the ed or president and supporting their work yeah. I mean, ultimately, this is a people business, right? It's a relationship. It is. Business. We're helping people, right? So people want to know who's helping the people. 100%. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about partnering up. I will share because you shared. I yeah. am a go-getter, which maybe is not a surprise to people. And my secondary is intuitive, which actually I would not have guessed. I would have guessed my secondary was mystery control, but anyway. Oh, well, you can't be diagonal. They have to be. Oh, you can't. Okay, let's talk about that. Why can't you be, be diagonal? Because then you're basically everything, and then it's just a mishmash. Well, maybe I just am everything, right? <laughs> well, then maybe you're here. No, we, we give it. We give an adjacent one because it gives you a sense of which of the two characteristics might be more dominant. I see. Right. So you're what we're saying here is your your intuition is really strong. That you're more in the middle of introvert extrovert. But the intuitive, well, you could be here, but the intuitive is really strong and that keeps you on this side of, 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 of the graph. Got right? it. If your secondary was Rainmaker, it would be saying the extroversion's really strongest, but you've got more of that analytic side. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Okay, so, so if we take this quiz, which I hope everyone listening to this does take, how do we shore up for... I don't want to say weaknesses, that's a strong word, but our areas of growth, like yeah. how, how do we team up so that we have someone who is yeah. making up for where we might be lacking a bit? Yes. So I, I'm a big fan of partnering, by the way, partnering on relationships and on asset. I, I think I often recommend to organizations to cover less ground, but to cover it more deeply for a lot of reasons. From the donor point of view, if there are two relationships between the donor and the organization, that strengthens the bond. 
right away. And secondarily, there's a lot of movement on our side. A lot of fundraisers come, they go, board members come and go. And having two relationships uh, ensures that there'll always be one. How many of our donors fall off the grid because the person they were close to had left? And it's so the goal always is to first keep the gifts you have, keep the donors you have. So I like to, for that reason, from that point of view, but also as a fundraiser, I like it because someone compliments me. It's more enjoyable to do it together. It's more enjoyable to be in the meetings. We often don't know our donors as well at, at, at the ideal level when we go to talk to them about a gift, right? And we don't know who they're going to cotton to more, who they're going to just jive with more in the meeting or who would have the answer to the question or be a better person to answer it. So I like this idea of partnering. Now, in most organizations, you go with whoever you got, right? You, you don't even have a fundraiser on staff. You're the ED, you're doing it all. So if you're going to go with anyone, it's someone from the program side, or maybe it's your board chair. So you have what you have. In that case, you use the styles to understand better how the two of you would work. So you can figure out who plays which role in advance and be more strategic. And you might be able to take into, a, into account your donor. So you might be a rainmaker and a go-getter going out together to see a mystery controller. Well, what does that mean? First and foremost, do not hijack the meeting. You could just do all the talking. Your mission controller is going to take more. By the way, extrovert versus introvert. Extroverts talk to think. Introverts think to talk. Very important. Extroverts talk to think. They process out loud. Introverts like to first think and then talk. And it means a slight lag often after you've asked a question, sometimes a long lag, right? And, and the, the extroverts can end up filling the space needed for introverts to think and then respond. We introverts end up speeding up our thought process to be in the rhythm of discussions where we would have preferred to slow down and think, right? But if we do take the time that gets filled in. So extroverts have to be very patient with a mission controller. I interviewed a mission controller fundraiser years ago. I had never, I mean, every time I asked a question, there was a huge pause while she thought out her answer. Her answer was always really great and thoughtful. Sometimes you throw an answer out and you want it back. I, I'm guilty in life all the time of repeating things because I say them quickly the first time because I'm trying to be in the rhythm. And then I say them a second time because I'm not sure I got them right. It, it's really just in our DNA to do that if we're introverts. So so we look at a Rainmaker go-getter and we say, how are we going to deal with the mission controller? And how are we going to deal with each other? Now, my great partner in fundraising, if people are listening from Chicago, he's Ron Manderscheid, who is the head of Northwestern Settlement House for almost 40 years. And I worked with him for 30 on multiple campaigns, more than a thousand meetings together. He is a go-getter like you, secondary kindred spirit, unkindred spirit, mission controller. He as the extrovert was good at opening the meetings when sometimes it would be awkward for me and I would need just a little bit more time to settle into, let's say we went to someone's house to feel comfortable and get into the rhythm. He also knew many of the donors better as the president. So he was very helpful, but I always said, oh, it would be amazing if you were a rainmaker because neither one of us had the analytic. We were both intuitives, but we raised a ton of money being intuitives, even seeing analytic donors because to the point we made earlier, we catered to them. We knew they were and such. So we can use them to figure out who our best partner might be. If there's a situation where all things equal, you can go with someone diagonally across the grid, great, because that means that you have, you've covered all your bases. But the reality for most of us is that uh, there's someone, we have to go with who we've got. And, and, and then we figure out how that works for us. I also just lift something up when I was reading your book that just made me giggle about after the ask, saying nothing oh. and having a glass of water to take a sip. You might, you might have taken many sips. Let's talk about the power of silence for a second. Yes. I did not come up with this, but boy, do I love it. And I, this has been my number one prop in my entire career. Because one, once we ask for a gift, 
which is the hardest thing to do. It is the hardest. When you consider a gift of $10,000 for our capital campaign, the next hardest thing is being silent while the donor considers it. And there's all this research on how little silence we can deal with <laughs> before it gets so uncomfortable we want to jump in. And it's so much less than the time it takes most people to think through and give you an answer, especially since it's something they weren't expecting. They're waiting to hear from us. And once we tell them, they have to think through that in perspective to everything in their lives. So the best thing to do is to say, would you consider a gift of $10,000 for a capital campaign? That gives you five seconds, generally. And that is often enough for someone to start to respond because, I mean, people want to respond to cater to you, but it may take them longer. Go-getters are probably going to respond immediately because they're so quick. Kindred spirits might respond quickly because to, to, to help you out. The analytics will take a little longer and the mission controllers will probably take the longest. So planful and thoughtful and you need to be prepared. And sometimes that can be 20 seconds, a minute. I've heard some outrageous amounts of time where you just sit in silence. Oh my gosh, as a go-getter, like it makes my skin crawl to imagine sitting. But it, you know what? I've also done it. You just got to be quiet. Got to do it so them... hard. I know. It's a conversation. As I say, look, it's a conversation. Eventually the person has to respond. Right, I know. Just, right? Otherwise you're just like throwing tennis balls into a vacuum cleaner. Right. Someone once told me they waited something like 10 minutes. I, I can't, I seriously, I'm firing <laughs> just in this past year. I always ask it when I, when I train, I say, what's the longest amount of time you've had to sit in silence? And someone said it was almost 10 minutes. Said, oh, there was, a, it was a couple and they were just looking back and forth. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like, you know, they're having a conversation with their eyes. Yeah, You're like, exactly. I don't know what's happening right now. Right. But, yeah. And, I think the person finally said, would you like me to leave the room? <laughs> but Brian, the thing that I also want to uplift here, especially for the new fundraisers is that often I mean, you're not asking on the first or second meeting. Like you've gone through a series of meetings. Yeah. They know why you're there. Yeah. You know either you're there. And right. if you're a person of wealth, you you have more money than you have time. So they, they've spent this much time with you. They're going to give a gift. It's really just yes. a question of negotiation. Yes. Very few people. Well, for I, I believe best practice is if you're going to ask for a gift, when you set up the meeting, you should say that. This is a meeting where I'd like to ask you to make a gift. So there's no surprise. You're not just turning the meeting to, oh, and now I'd like to ask you for a gift. They're waiting for it. And very few people will take that meeting if they don't intend to give a gift. That's right. And so at the end of the day, it's really how much they'll give, not if they'll give. I, I think I've gotten a gift and, and people may take some time. They may say, well, I might need a few months before I can decide or something. But I think I've gotten some gift 99% of the time either at the end of that meeting or in the future. I, I, can't, I can count on one hand the number of people said, I'm really not going to do anything. That's uncomfortable yeah. for them too. Why come to a meeting to do that? Why waste your time and how awkward? I mean, I, I will say I've never gone into a solicitation meeting you know, having done my homework without a gift of some kind. Now, it wasn't always the amount I wanted necessarily or had intended but there was all like otherwise why would you spend this much time with me right like, no one well, has that much time I to waste say, well i will say i had did i so i worked for my alma mater for many years and the, they had a women's committee made up of rather elderly ladies mostly at this point they had i mean they were young in 1948 or something but by 1980 they we were, were all young elderly. at one point brian yes exactly a lot of widows and I did find, I, I finally realized there were a few who just loved meeting with me, but weren't going to be donors at the level that, um, that would have made my time with them make sense. And, and I would ask here and there, and they put me off, and I finally had to move on. So there were a well, few examples. Brian, that's that. what you get for being so delightful. <laughs> that's on you. <laughs> well, well, I'll share that I went to Brandeis, which has a large Jewish 
philanthropy and fund founding and such. And so there were a lot of old Jewish boobies, as we would say in our world. And I think many of them wanted to set me up with their granddaughters. Oh my God, that's so funny. I, so when I first moved to New York, I lived in Stytown before it got fancy. And I was like riding up and down the elevators. And every week, I swear to you, someone, some Jewish grandmother would try to set me up with her grandson. Like, you they, seem like a nice they, girl. You seem like a, a nice yeah. girl, right? I was a nice, gent, <laughs> nice young gentleman. So yeah, I did get some of that. <laughs> okay, we I think we have time for one question. So Erica has a really great question. Erica, do you want to What's jump that? in here with yours? Sure, I'll jump right in. Hi, Brian, this Hi. has been so insightful. Great. I'm excited to get the book so I can take the quiz. Wonderful. Um, By wondering... the way, you can take the quiz without the book. I don't want you to feel you have to buy my book. Okay. You take the quiz at quiz.askingmatters.com. It's free for everyone. Okay. And then hopefully you want to buy the book. Okay, we're just beginning to make those major gift asks. We've had a bit of it in the past, but I'm curious to know, we're, you're talking about being in a meeting with somebody, there's an expectation that an ask will be made, right? Like, why else are you in a meeting together? Can you provide an example of how you would like frame up that invitation to meet where you intend to ask yes. for a gift? Yeah, I would. Well, first of all, how do you, how do you communicate that as part of the asking styles as well? So I always email. Uh, email has been my friend for 20 plus years because I don't like the phone. I find it very awkward. Ron, my buddy, he always would just pick up the phone. I, and and I, I always want to email and lay it out and say, this is where we're at. We know you care. Would you consider meeting with me so I can talk about where we're at and ask you for a more significant, if they've already given, if their giver's already a more significant gift. I try not to ever discuss the amount before we actually meet, but I want them to know and put it in that perspective. And it's always, would you consider? The ask is also, would you consider a gift? Because would you is conditional, and most people would consider what we're asking them to do. Would you consider a gift? I never call it a pledge, a donation, any an investment, a gift because it says uh, positive things. So I so the letter or the phone call might say, "Would you consider meeting with me to discuss a more significant gift to the organization? You've been so supportive, etc." Does that answer your question? We have time for one last question. Sharon, jump in here and ask your question, and then we'll have to wrap up. But Brian, we can talk to you for hours. Sharon. Hi, Brian. I am curious about your perspective and Rhea too. We all know the importance of relationship building. It's key. It's the crux of all of this. But nowadays, after three years of pandemic and everyone's so busy, it is really hard to have multiple meetings and build those relationships with certain donors, yeah. especially if you've joined an organization and only have had, say, the last pandemic years. Yeah, um, so And hard. so sometimes we feel like we just landed it. They'll get on the phone, they'll get on Zoom, or they'll do that coffee. And we, we don't have so much time to build up to an ask. Do you have any perspective on that moment? Should you just leave yeah. it? Can you do yeah. it in the right way? So a couple of things. First of all, boy, are we lucky that we had video technology for fundraising during the pandemic, because there's no question that meeting in person is the ideal. We never could always meet in person. We always had to default to the phone or maybe an email conversation, which was worse. I mean, I will default to the phone from meeting in person, even though I don't like phone, but having video chat really helped because there's nothing like seeing the other person's face and being able to read it. So thank God we have that. And, and many people with closed countless gifts by video chat, but we get less time, right? We're not gonna have an hour on a video chat or an hour and a half over lunch or two hours. So we are learning less, but almost to your point, I think people are expecting a bit less because lives are busy. And I think, my rule of thumb in fundraising forever has been, if it's on my mind, share it with the donor. So I might say, I know things are busier. Exactly like what you're asking me. I know things are busier, but there's nothing like spending the time together to get to know you and for you to know the organization. I would love to spend that time. If you don't have as much time, do you have a shorter amount of time? And how do you feel if we've spent less time together and then I ask you for a gift? 
I ask permission to ask. So I'm, I might say, if I'm not sure where the donor's at because I haven't had as much of that rich interaction with them, I will say, I know you love the organization. You've got a history and such, but I don't know if you're ready, right? I know the pandemic has thrown everything up in the air. Would you be ready for me to ask you or would you rather I wait? Most of the time that alone helps people come to the table because you're giving them the space and they can come to you. And so I'm finding that that I've always felt that that was a good way. And with the pandemic and all the challenges you're talking about now, which are real, I think it's helpful to just put it all on the table. And, and I think you can get far that way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think kind of signposting how much time you're actually going to ask for is really important, especially in the super busy days. But it's so interesting. I've actually done a bit of fundraising recently with tech people and they operate completely differently. Like all of the playbook is out the window. They're like, text me. Let me know how much you want and I'll let you know. Uh, I'm like, like uh, I don't know how to deal with this, right? But like yeah. we've landed like seven-figure gifts via text. It's bananas. So, so all to say that I think that there's a whole other generation coming out that yeah, is, there is different, right? They're, yes. they're much less likely to want to have a, a conversation. They're much less likely to want to spend actual one-on-one yeah. -on -one time. They're, and then depending on where they are, when tech finance kind of comes to me as two obvious examples, much more analytical and much more likely to make quick decisions yes. with yes. less touch points. Yes, yes, yes. So things are moving faster because everything in life moves faster now. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I feel like we need to do a case study on raising money from tech people because I, mm. I just did this experience and it was wild. I was like, literally everything I know about fundraising has now just been short-circuited. I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> okay, last question for okay. me, Brian. This is a fun one. If you had a metaphorical billboard that you could communicate anything to the world, what would be on your billboard? I, I was just going to say facts matter, but that's going down another rabbit hole kind. There's, we're struggling so much on that front. There's so much ugliness. I don't know. Re related to fundraising, of course, I'd always say asking matters. You've got to get out there. Get out there. Just do it. Or I, I'd actually, we have, we came up with all these slogans when we started. And one of them, my son throws back in my face all the time. So as any good child, he asks for money all the time. Can I have money for this? Can I have money for that? And, and I often say no. And he'll say, well, as you say, would say, dad, don't ask, don't get. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Oh, they're listening, those kids. <laughs> yeah, he's listening. Don't ask, don't get. So I might say that. Don't ask, don't get. Yeah, that's a, yeah. such a good one. Right. Don't let the fear of rejection keep you from asking for sure. Right. Okay. Right. Brian, if folks okay. want to get in touch with you or if they want to take the quiz, where can they do that? I'll make sure it's in the show notes, but where would be the best um, place for folks to connect with you? Quiz.askingmatters.com is a great place to start. And and you can go to briansaber.com as well. Very good. I'll make sure it's all good. in the show notes. Brian, thank you so much. This is so fun. Thank you. I learned so thank much. You all. That was so all my go-getters out there. <laughs> and now that I spent an hour with all of you, I'm going to sit with my word puzzles for a while. <laughs> oh, I won't tell you today's word, but it's it's a good one. I got it in three. I yes, it was a good word. Yes. Okay. All thank right. You. Take care, everyone. Good luck to everyone with your fundraising. Bye bye. Bye. Hi, if you're a fan of Nonprofit Lowdown, you might be interested in my weekly free newsletter where I send out weekly inspiration for fundraising, notices about any upcoming events that I'm doing, and a cute dog picture. So check it out at riawong.com, R-A-G-A-W-O-N-G.com.